listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Hello, young nation, but getting older. How's everyone doing today? Happy Wednesday, coast to coast to coast. We have a great big menu of delicious items today. The war room is here. Yes, the beef is politics. Uh, Canada is failing at its environment plan. So the environment commissioner has just released five new reports, damning reports, overly optimistic, unrealistic. He'll join me. You get a snapshot of that. And Matea Roach is dropping by. The Nova Scotia superstar who won, has now won 16 consecutive games on Jeopardy. Last night, she won her 16th game. She's only made $368,000 American. Ha, what a genius. And get this. I met Matea when many years ago I was hosting a spelling contest, a national spelling contest that I hosted called Superspeller. And we traveled across the country, and out in Nova Scotia, there was a young Matea Roach who was part of it. And I met her then, and now she's a Jeopardy champ. I am excited to talk to Matea How smart do you have to be to win 16 Jeopardy games? In her she's 23 years old, and she is a certified rock star. You will also meet a farmer in B.C. who's basically had her entire chicken flock wiped out by avian flu. This is going to break your heart. And we got lots on the go. But I begin with a massive new issue. Now, I know there's new sanctions on Russia from Canada. That's important. I don't know if it's going to deter Russia. I'm glad Canada's doing it. But Canada's census has been out. And we're older And you might think, census? Come to your census, Evan. Talk about anything else and no more dad jokes. But here's the drill. Every single thing we will talk about in the next number of days, months, and years, your life, every political decision, your tax dollars is driven by demographics. Demographics is destiny. Demographics is destiny. All policy. Forget spin. Forget what people promise you. Forget. Look at the data. And the data today, the data today is massive. I'm going to read you this because this is going to change your life and our country. The Canadian population, according to the new census, has more people between the ages of 55 and 64 than it does between the ages of 15 and 24. So more people about to leave the workforce than entering it. In 1966, as an example... There were 200 people between 15 and 24 for every 100 Canadians older. Now it's flipped. There are 81 people aged 15 to 24 for every 100 Canadians aged 55 to 64. Do you understand how crazy that is? The reason why the boomers rode this wave of prosperity is because 
They didn't have to take care of very many old people. They were entering the workforce. They didn't have to pay for huge health care costs, huge retirement costs, pension costs, all those costs which are driving the budgets and deficits. I'm, I'm, I don't say this because I resent it. It's just this is the reality. There were 200 people entering the workforce to pay for every 100 people who are about to exit it. So, of course, the balance was right. You're just more in, less out. You're in a good situation. If you now have only 81 people to pay for every 100 Canadians between 55 and 64, what happens? Let me tell you. Who's going to pay for health care? Deficits. Who's going to pay for home care? Deficits. Who's going to pay for pensions? Deficits. There's no workforce for this, folks. The population is not big enough. We are a mushroom about to tip over. That's the reality. This is not a, an opinion on this is good or bad. This is, is what it is. There's no other way to see it. And that's going to, every single thing that we do in the next tech decade is contingent on this. And here's why. We're not having enough babies. Right? Declining fertility? Yes. Check. People are aging. Thank God. People are healthy. They're aging longer. You know, when the, when we first talked years ago about uh, the age of retirement, we're talking about should we start paying people a pension at 65? The average age of living was 68 for a man. Now it's in his mid-80s. Good. This is good. This is good. But pensions last significant, you know, decades longer than they thought. Now, Compared to the rest of the G7, we're better than the UK. They have 65% of the population is, is uh, 15 to 64. And, and, and Japan's less than 60. Japan's got a, a huge problem. Japan has very low immigration rates. They don't like to have high immigration, low fertility rates, and a highly aging population. That has crushed the great Japanese economy that was at one point the boom economy. It has been crushed by deflationary pressures, partly because they've got an aging workforce and they have no replacement. So we're getting older. And then, and then who's going to vote? So young people are like, hey, I need first-time homebuyer policies. There are 7 million Canadians 65 and older. That's almost 20% of the population. They vote. That drives the political agenda. Now, here's where things get interesting. Even though baby boomers are now 25% of the population, they're a huge group. And they're growing. And the aged are growing. We get that. And the only answer, according to all demographers, is how do you get out of this? Well, you either raise fertility rates. Who can afford to have more kids? I have two kids. I, my wife and I wanted four. And we couldn't do it. And, and we've talked about that. Uh, fertility issues and a whole bunch of things. I've been very open about that. I, any way you want to build a family is a great way to do it. But we have two beautiful kids. We're blessed. We're lucky. I, I thank God every day for it. But I wanted four, but could I have afforded four? Four is hard. Four is expensive, man. Three is expensive. 
So people aren't having kids because they can't afford it. And the other thing is housing. Here we are in a housing crisis. So what's if you don't have more babies, what do you do? You got to bring in more immigrants. And you have to. The only way to keep a society healthy and supported to support an aging population with these numbers is to massively increase immigration. Massively. That's the answer. Because you're not having babies suddenly because no one's having more than two babies. So you got to massively increase immigration. Well, how do you do that? We've already got a massive housing shortage. If you increased immigration, does the price of housing go up? Yes. We're going to have a massive labor shortage. Labor shortage is going to be massive. So you're going to need more immigrants. That's the answer. This, again, these aren't opinions. Your economy can't grow. Your workforce can't grow. You can't pay for social services unless you have replacement level generations. And the only way to do it is through either fertility or immigration. That's the answer. It's a binary situation. But they each come with costs. And concern, and you got to do it right or you'll screw it up. So I'm going to ask you this in our first block, and we'll go over the census a bit. Do you think Canada should massively increase our immigration to deal with the demographic bomb that's going off? These are the numbers. Increase immigration or not, or increase fertility. What do we do about our massive labor shortage? one 633 1010 That's next. As this story changes, we react. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Welcome back to the show. Wow, we have found out that we are getting old, man. We are getting old. And who's going to pay for health services? Who's going to pay for long-term care when we've got significantly more people aging out of the workforce than coming into the workforce? That's just the fact. And that's what the that's the headline news coming out of the, the new census. And you need fertility rates to go up or you need immigration to go up. And even Stats Can is saying, like, you can rapidly boost immigration, but we're still going to head into problems. But what are we going to do? Now, some people are already writing me at 71010, and I'm going to read your text, but call me, 1-855-633-1010 or 71010. How do we deal with this? The next five or ten years, folks, it's going to change. Like, you cannot avoid this. The train is on the track. You can hear the horn. It's coming. You can close your eyes. You can pretend it's not going to happen. But your health care bills are going to go up. Your long-term care bills are going to go up. Uh, we've got housing prices that are going to go up. H- how are we going to tr- – we're going to have labor force shortages. That means salaries are going to go up. That means inflation is going to happen. I mean, these are things that happen. And now there's going to be technology changes and there's going to be all sorts of issues, but Canada is going to have to eventually take care of an elderly population. And it's a mushroom. We've got more people at the top and, and fewer people coming into the system. That's what the census is saying. And there's really no way out except increasing immigration. Or fertility. Now, if you increase immigration, then you can call me, 1-855-633-1010, 1-855-633-1010, or 71010. That's great. Some people say, no, it's going to take jobs. Immigra-. No. Studies always show that immigrant, immigrants contribute 
net positive to our economy. Economic growth and immigration are intimately tied. We already have, according to StatsCan's March Labor Force Survey, our unemployment rate is at the lowest level since 1976 when comparable data was available, 5.3%. We have a massive, massive labor shortage, according to StatsCan. Unemployment at the lowest level since 1976, even if you had the adjusted unemployment rate, which includes people who wanted a job but did not look for one, it's below pre-pandemic levels, 7.2%. And immigrants, the unemployment rate for immigrants in the job force in the last five years is 8.3%. That is the lowest in since 2006. And that 2006, the only way we can know that is that's when comparable data was measured. In other words, unemployment rate is, is low. And according to uh, the chief economist at RBC, with unemployment rates so low, virtually all industries are bumping up against labor shortages, including those hospitality sectors that have yet to fully recover. Dan in London, what's up? Yeah, hi. You know, I think uh, what needs to happen here in this country and probably a lot of other countries we have to make it affordable for people to have families. If you want people to start having uh, four, you know, three, four, five children, uh, you know, we have to make it affordable. And the only way we're going to do that in this country is have some leadership that perhaps opens up uh, some of our resources so we can build this country to be very wealthy. And one would be the oil. I know people are going to say, oh, the oil, the oil. Well, we have to do something in this country. We have to be uh, stand our own two feet. We need industry. We need something going on here. Like people aren't going to have kids because they can't afford them, and even immigrants coming in, you know, they're not going to be having five or six kids if they can't afford to have. But but, uh, but so I'm just trying to figure out. I agree. We affordability is a huge issue, but so one way is economic growth. You're saying economic growth through using our our natural resources and building pipelines. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's lots of things. Oh, do you think government, what about things like, you know, the, the new child care deal that, that every province and territory has signed on to, to help people take care of their kids when they're both in the workforce? Are you into that? No, I'm not. I'll tell you why. Uh, if you're going to have children, raise your own children. Like, okay, just for instance, and I'm just one person. When, I, when my wife and I had children, we made an absolute agreement that our kids would never be dropped off at a daycare for one day. And we did that. And you know how we did that? We worked, we worked around that. I, uh, I had a day job. She took night jobs. I get up in the morning, go to work. I, I understand that, you but know, you're, you're, so you're just what? saying it's... You, you're, sorry, I'm just trying to understand. That's a great choice. I'm not going to judge your choice. That, that's, everybody's got a different choice. But your first contention is you're trying to say you've got to make it easier for people to have kids. Then I right. give you a solution. This, this might be easier, allow people to work without having to do that, make life a little easier, and you're saying you disagree with it. So I'm just, but doesn't that actually make it easier? I, I, like, isn't that a solution to people who would avail themselves of that? Well, okay, the, the way, honestly, the way I see it, if you're going to have children, raise your own children. Sometimes we have problems with children today because their parents aren't raising them. You know what I mean? Like, you can't have it all in the world. Yeah, People I don't, I don't agree. I don't, I don't think right. we got... Yeah, and, and listen, I, I, first of all, I, I love that you're raising your kids so passionately. And I, and I really mean this as another dad, and um, I would never judge your, your choices. And I mean it. Uh, I think they're beautiful choices because they're yours, and you're free to make them. 
But I, I don't think it's fair to also say one of the reasons we have trouble in the world is that people are you have uh, childcare for their kids. And I think for those thousands and millions of people who have had their kids in childcare, um, you're doing, you know, th- those choices are also respected and your kids are, 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 there's no data that those kids are turning out uh, any worse or better. Uh, they're just fine. Uh, I appreciate the call though, Dan. And uh, Robert in Windsor wants to jump on. Robert. Hello, Evan. Um, I was born in 1960. I'm going to turn 62 this year and I've been retired for 11 years and my solution, and I'm dead serious, no pun intended, is that I will opt out of the system so I won't be a burden. And that's, and that's what my grandmother said before she died. She didn't want to be a burden on anybody. And we, sh- we shoot the people out of her room and let her die peacefully. You can extract my organs. I mean, it sounds, I think it's, you could do that. I mean, it's... But, so I'm not, like, I, I'm trying to understand this. I'm processing You don't understand? This. What, I'm trying to listen. I, I'm, first of all, what do you mean a burden? Like, you've worked, well, have you been, have, let me just ask you, have you worked, have you worked hard for your life? Oh, my God. I started working when I was 14 illegally. Yes, so, I've worked And have you And have until... you paid your taxes? Yes. And have you, and have you contributed to society? Of so so you're not a burden, my friend. The, yes, I, just, listen, listen. I'm you're not a burden. A you, you've done your here. share. No, listen. I'm trying to voluntarily say that I'm happy with how I, my life has gone so far, so I will voluntarily opt out. I'm, I'm but, serious. But what does that mean? Like, kidding. are you actually talking about voluntarily, like, like, like medically assisted out, dying? I don't, mean, I don't mean committing suicide. Okay. I mean, just, like, I don't want to... But you don't want you don't want to take a pension from the government kind of thing. Is that what you're well, saying? No, I already do. I already do. I've been collecting a pension since fifty one. I'm collecting my CPP. Right. And so what are you uh, opting out of? I'm just trying to understand that. What what are you trying to opt out of? I, I haven't I haven't this I'm, is so I'm trying to opt out of not having to go into the hospital and be kept alive and cost thousands and thousands right. of dollars like I see. so end of life easily. care so is so at the end of life you're saying don't right. don't and, don't and do, I'm okay. not terminally ill I'm perfectly healthy and then that would save the government money because of the system we have like it's very hard to insure the whole country right it's yeah, not but easy. I'm gonna tell you this and, and and listen I think what you're saying is fascinating I, I would just be wary of this individual well, sure, individuals matter like you in the end you're gonna chicken it's, out it's, like, I'm not chickening oh, out but yeah, but well, of course, because I'm not like I think that you're an individual and you have every right to life. You don't have to say my life. I would rather save the government money. No, I think there are better solutions than asking people to give up their lives. I would just think your life is too precious. You're an individual, and I think we got to find better, more creative solutions than act asking people to give up their lives for the sake of the economy. No, like I, I think well, this is Canada. We're a G7 country. Sorry. I just want you to live a, a beautiful, long, healthy uh, old age. To, I don't want to give up my life. I'm saying if, if I came down with cancer or right. a heart attack, you know, you can drag people's lives on for a long time with all the medication and procedures and everything. Huh? And, and then what kind of quality of life are you having? Like I've, I've known people at, when they come to the end of their life, the last few years, I mean years, have been very bad, yeah. very poor. Well, I hope, uh, listen, I appreciate the call. I don't think, uh, I hope we don't get there. But but see, look at people are, are these are, listen, we're into some really amazing stuff here. Uh, I got to take a break though. God, maybe we should do more of this. I got the environment commissioner and he's got some scathing words about the Liberals environment plan next though. We'll, we'll do that first.
talking to the newsmakers every day. The conversation continues with Evan Solomon. All right, we got the war room coming up. We got Matea Roach standing by, the Nova Scotia Jeopardy superstar, 16 consecutive Jeopardy wins. Wow, I can't wait. So she's she's up next. But scathing reports from the uh, Environment Watchdog, Canada's Environment Commissioner, says, you know what? The credibility of the Liberals' plan is in question because some of the words he used, it's unrealistic, it's overly optimistic in some cases, and they haven't really considered how to transition workers, like coal workers, who are supposed to have this green transition. Not very well organized. Jerry DeMarco is your environment commissioner. He's independent. And he released five audits yesterday that document the federal government's shortcomings. Failure to produce a meaningful just transition plan for energy workers displaced by the low carbon economy. Uneven application of the national price on carbon. Does this throw the Liberals' plan into question? Well, I spoke with the Environment Commissioner and Sustainable Development Commissioner Jerry DeMarco, and I asked him in your report, you say, Sir, the federal government has not prepared to support a just transition for workers to the low carbon economy. Why not? Well, of today's report cards, the just transition one is the worst. They haven't really done much at all since committing to a just transition and helping communities and workers through the transition to a net zero economy. The commitment was from 2015, and yet there's still no legislation in place for just transition. Okay, and what's the consequence on that? Uh, who, who will bear the burden of that? The, the potential is that uh, coal workers and other communities that are dependent on fossil fuels will be left behind if a door is not opened for them at the same time as the doors are being closed for the transition to a new green economy for Canada. You found the government is using, quote, unrealistic assumptions for hydrogen. It was overly optimistic. Can you explain what that means and if that undermines the credibility of the overall emissions reductions plan? Yeah, there were a few problems with the hydrogen file, one of which was that two departments had vastly different views as to hydrogen's potential. Hopefully they'll correct that by just coming to one number rather than two numbers like they have done to date. But some of the assumptions, like the price of electricity, are are not realistic in the uh, strategy. So they've got to come up with a realistic plan, one that's transparent and one that could pass uh, scientific muster if if it's really going to achieve the the reductions that they're setting out to achieve. You, let's talk about infrastructure. That's $12 billion of investment. And, and you said there's no reliable information about how the government will invest in climate-ready infrastructure. Can, can you explain to people what that means and the consequence of that? Yeah, so they've got several different funds aimed at uh, essentially subsidizing green infrastructure so that uh, buildings, bridges and so on are more resilient to climate change and buildings are, are have less emissions. So the um, it's a strange audit in the sense that they actually got off on the right foot with their climate lens, which is an assessment tool for determining the greenness of a project, but they then watered that down partway through our audit, and they've now got a weaker climate lens that gets the money out the door faster, but it doesn't guarantee the outcomes as well as the previous. In other words, we don't know if we're going to get value for money out of that in terms of what it's supposed to do. Um, you also found in these reports, Commissioner, that carbon pricing disproportionately puts a burden on small businesses and indigenous communities. Can you measure how much higher a burden they face? 
We can't do it in a percentage, but we have identified in our report the problems with uh, the, the small businesses, medium-sized businesses, indigenous communities, and the taxpayer in general uh, carrying more of the weight than large emitters in industry. So there's a question of fairness with respect to the implementation of the early days of carbon pricing. We're happy to see that the government has agreed with all of our recommendations to improve carbon pricing so that it's more effective and more fair. You know, you talked about a lack of transparency with this government concerning climate progress. Do you, I, just looking at these reports, some people might think, boy, this undermines their credibility. They won't hit the targets yet. They're claiming, as you heard the environment minister say, look, it's actually working, and you're saying it's overly optimistic or it's unrealistic, and the credibility could be undermined. Where do you come out at the end of this? How do people assess their plan? Is it still credible? Well, we'll assess the new plan. It just came out, so we'll have to wait till next year to to look at the uh, the entirety of the new plan. But a lot of the problems that we found in today's audits could apply to the new plan. So we've made recommendations that are not just looking back, but they're intended to help them improve their their course of action moving forward. We're hoping that a more transparent and more credible plans mm. will help them finally turn the corner from three decades of missing plans and missing target missing plan objectives and missing targets. Last question. Last year, you said, quote, Canada has consistently failed to meet its emission reduction target. This is a new plan. It's a significantly more robust plan. But do you still believe that's the case? So they just missed another one since then. Of course, the, the data just came out on the 2020 uh, target, and we missed that as well, even though there, 2020 was a COVID year and there was a reduction in emissions. So they do need to actually focus on results and outcomes and not just a plan that adds up, but actions that add up. Okay, Environment Commissioner uh, Jerry DeMarco, uh, again, uh, always enjoy having you on the program and really interesting audits, the five reports. Say thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Well, there you go. That's your environment commissioner. What I love about these independent watchdogs, they're not there to carry water for the blue, the orange, or the red. They're there to call it as they see it. Now, does this undermine the entire plan? Well, it does, as the commissioner say, throw into question its credibility to meet the targets. Now, does that mean it's useless? No. But it does mean that it's rigorous. It needs rigorous testing. It needs fixing. And we shouldn't just expect things to work because, quote, the government says so. We need people like Mr. DeMarco and his team to analyze and audit. Like, you're, you know how much the infrastructure investment is in green infrastructure? $12 billion. It's big money. I want to know if I'm getting value out of money on that, don't you? So make a promise, but... I want to know transparently the answer. Does it work? Are we going to really reduce emissions? Don't tell people in the fossil fuel sector, oh, there'll be a just transition to the low-carbon economy. Where's the plan? We don't have one. If you want me to cross a canyon, you better have a good bridge. Don't just lead me to the canyon with the promise of a bridge and then say leap. And that's what it looks like, and that's not fair. All right, now we got lots coming up on the program. Matea Roach, the Nova Scotia native who uh, had just won her 16th game of Jeopardy's on the other side of a short break. But I got to tell you, can we just give a shout out 
uh, and I know there's a lot of you Leaf fans out there. I know listening in our stations in Toronto and around St. Catharines and London and Windsor. Uh, that level, I mean, you know, I'm in Ottawa, so Sens fans and our Habs fans in Montreal or our Canuck fans in Victoria and Vancouver and Kelowna, hang in there. But let's just give a shout out to Austin Matthews. 60 goals, man. I love any athletic achievement. When someone just does something that people haven't done in like a decade. You know, Steve Stamkos. Ovechkin. I mean, where this kid is gone is unbelievable. Now, whether he performs in the playoffs is another story. But just remarkable when one person, and, and this is kind of interesting because Matea Roach is on the other side of the break because she's the Jeopardy champion. Just when someone's so good at something, you know, millions and millions and millions of people are trying to do something, play Jeopardy. Go to school, but Matea's the best. Austin Matthews, you know, every kid's playing hockey. 60 goals in the NHL is... Now, I know people are going to say, well, what about you? What about 92? Wayne, Yeah, different era. And, and I'm not comparing him to Wayne. I love Wayne. And no one's touching Wayne. But 60 in 2022 is a big deal. 60 in 20... And, and we'll see what happens. Just amazing to see that. And I'm kind of, you know, look, the Raptors are going to play tomorrow night. They've got a game six. They're they're playing great. The Jays pull it out against Boston. Hey, all you Toronto fans, you're having a moment. Revel in it. And speaking of champions, Matea Roach on the other side of a break. Kinda love that. Now that's a song that Nova Scotia's Matea Roach has heard at least 16 times because she just won her 16th game on Jeopardy last night. Her grand total, 368,000 American dollars, but she has become famous. She's a U of T alumni. She's a Nova Scotia native and she joins us now. Matea, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I am crazy proud of you. Everyone is. Um, now, am I crazy, Matea? Did we meet when you were a super speller and I hosted that program? No, you're not crazy. I had completely forgotten about it until after I think I'd already signed a bunch of paperwork for Jeopardy. And one of the things they ask you about is like, have you been on any other television shows? And I was like, no, not really, because you might recall I didn't do nearly as well on Canvas. <laughs> I, I want to talk about I want to remind people, but keep going. Yeah, no, I was just going to say I did not make it out of the first round on Canvas Super Spellers. So. <laughs> Thankfully, I had better luck in L.A. Okay, I want to remind people. So, like, years ago, I hosted this show with Jonathan Torrens, the great, amazing Jonathan Torrens. And um, and it was like, it was basically like a Canada spelling bee. And it was a multi-part television series on CBC. And you had made it as one of the candidates. And one of the producers um, uh, had just reminded me um, that you were part of it. And then I realized, oh my God, that's where I met Matea. How old were you then? I was, so I think I was representing New Brunswick at the time. So I would have been pretty young. I moved back to Nova Scotia when I was 11. So I would have been like no older than 11. 
Oh my God. Well, well, uh, a woman named Skana G who was the done publicity. She's like, so proud of you, but you didn't ace it, but I thought you were so brilliant. So tell me about Jeopardy. Like, let's get to this. So you emerge, you're always brilliant, but like, how did you get on Jeopardy? Uh, I mean, the, the kind of factual boring answer is, you know, I did the test the same as anybody else does. Um, so in November of 2020, I like so many other people my age was stuck back at my parents' house uh, during the, you know, the throes of the pandemic. Um, and I was watching a lot of Jeopardy because we always kind of watched it when I was right. in middle school, high school. Um, and while I was at home, I, like Alex Trebek passed away during that time period. Right. And so I think I was just taking in the show every day was thinking about it a lot even when I wasn't watching it because of that tragic event. And so I decided, like, I have nothing to lose by, you know, doing the online test for this show. Um, and then I was lucky enough to get moved on to the second round and then the third round. And I guess I came off personable enough in the gameplay audition. They decided that they wanted to put me on the show. Um, but in terms of, like, how did I learn all of the information, you know, that I've been able to produce on the show, like, I think that that's just from a lifetime of being really excited about learning and wanting to know the answers to stuff. What, just tell what, what, like you're what, 24 now? I'm 23. 23. So, so what do you want to do? Like, what is your, do you have a life? I mean, now that you're rich anyway, but what do you, what do you want to do? Like, do you want to be a doctor, a lawyer, a politician? Do you have a goal? So actually, before I was cast on Jeopardy, um, I had applied to law school in the fall. Um, and so I'm waiting to hear back still from a couple of places. Um, so if I'm accepted to law school, like, I think that that's something that I will do. Um, but, you know, failing that, um, I really don't know. I think one of the things that's like nice, but also scary about being my age is like there really is still a lot of life with you ahead. Like there's a huge runway and you don't know necessarily what opportunities are going to arise. Like, I certainly never thought I was going to be on Jeopardy. And so, yeah, I mean, laws... Like, has this changed? Look, first of all, you're not yeah. not going into Jeopardy. I like you, like, failing that. Believe me, you're getting into law school, okay? Every law school is listening right now. They want the Matea Roach uh, scholarship ready. But, Matea, let me just... How has your life changed? Like, you're on 16 games. You're, you're breaking records. You've become an international celebrity. I'm sure you're doing... Like, what has changed for you now? I mean, are you doing interviews all day, all the time? Um, not all day, all the time, but I have been, I have been doing quite a lot of interviews. I would say, you know, my day to day, um, aside from the introduction of interviews into my schedule is mostly the same as it's always been. Like I'm still tutoring the LSAT. Um, I'm still, you know, getting drinks with friends, uh, you know, once or twice a week. Like, uh, I think when things will really start to shift is, uh, you don't actually get the money you're winning from Jeopardy typically until a little bit after your oh. final episode airs. So that'll be when really I find out what's going to change for me, because this is like such a massive uh, influx of cash for anybody, but especially for me at my age. You're going to be, it's, that's crazy. And, and by the way, we don't know how far you're going to go in this. How nervous were you, uh, like, first episode, and do you just start getting, more, I, I know you guys record multiple uh, episodes per day, but with the first time you're there, how nervous were you? And it seems like it's more than just about knowledge. It's about, you know, pressing that button real quick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I completely agree with that. It's definitely about, you know, it's about luck. It's about buzzer speed. It's about a lot of things. Um, the first game, I was very nervous. Like I had to go kind of take a walk a little bit outside in the lot and you're supervised the entire time that you're there. So some poor member of the contestant team had to like stand outside with me while I was nervously pacing around. Um, but after the first game, once I realized that I was a Jeopardy champion, I kind of thought, well, that's way more than I thought I was going to accomplish right. down here. So no matter what happens in the next game, like I'm already a winner. 
And I think that that knowledge, um, at least for me, made it a lot less nerve wracking playing the subsequent games. And as I won more and more, you know, I started to really feel like, well, if I lose this game, like I'm not even going to be that upset about it because at the end of the day, it pales in comparison to what I've accomplished, you know, already being down here. So that really helped, I think, with my nerves past that first game. But does it, does it, does the pressure, like you're going for your 17th win tonight. Okay. Does the pressure build or is it just happening too fast? It's happening too fast because, as you said, you're you know you're taping five shows in a day, right? So you almost don't even get time to really think between those tapings um, of like the weight and the significance of what you're doing. And I think the other thing that helps too is it's not like uh, you know people were watching me play and then there was pressure of like oh people expect a certain standard from me, right? It's all taped so far in advance that the only pressure that I really felt was like me wanting to live up to my own expectations right. of what I realized I could do, right? But again, like I said, you know, I knew that no matter what, after that first game, I was walking away a Jeopardy champion, and that's something that nobody would ever be able to take away from me. So okay, it's a good now, feeling. Matea, now that you're like, you've got, do you get sweat? Like now that you've won sixteen, and you know you're, you go on this roll, right? Now, when other contestants are introduced, you see that they're nervous. Now you've got swag. Are you doing anything? Like, are you like, all right, you're up against the master now, the road. Like, are you giving them a little swag? Are you are you kind of flexing at all to, to kind of, you know, like, hey, I'm going to make you a little more nervous. Welcome to the big leagues. No, I tried to do exactly the opposite, in fact. Um, I tried to be, like, <laughs> kind of personable and chatting with people. Because the thing is, is, of course, like, I wanted to win. But you don't want somebody's memory, uh, you know, of the day to be like, I lost. And, wow, that, that champion really was quite, you know, rude to me. and was giving me the gears. Um, no, I think I tried to, if anything, make people more comfortable. Because I also, you know, if I'm winning games, like, I want to be winning good games. I want to feel like I'm winning against people that are really giving their best. And so I think I was like, I don't get anything about, you know, putting on a show for these people right. trying to flex and make them uncomfortable. Like, I would much rather, uh, you know, lose to somebody who's playing really well and maybe like me making them feel comfortable was part of it versus feeling like I'm winning because I was uh, putting on a bit of a show. You're so awesome. So so are you going to the Tournament of Champions now, right? No matter what happens, right? You're, you met, you're in. Yeah. So once I won my fifth game, that's, uh, you know, barring like truly extraordinary circumstances, that's a guaranteed tournament of champions first. So, uh, yeah, in the fall, I believe I'll be there. <laughs> You're going back to L.A. OK, well, but, yeah. listen, I, tonight we'll all watch. Will Matea hit 17? Uh, we hope you do. You are awesome. I, I, I just love that we met years ago. It's so crazy. You are just such an inspiration and your attitude, your performance, and, and we need role models like you in this world. Go for it, Matea. What a pleasure to reconnect. Yeah, thanks. Small world. Thank you so much for having me on. What a pleasure. We'll watch. I hope we chat again, Matea. The War Room is on the other side to talk politics. Listening to the iHeart Radio Talk Network, and this is the Evan Solomon Show. They are rolling in like thunder, but they ain't rolling thunder. It is the war room. Let me be perfectly clear. Putting out misinformation. And we hear that misleading politics. What's really important here? Spreading it online unequivocally. The War Room. Yes, Tim Powers, Chairman of Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, Tom Mulcair, CTV political analyst, former NDP leader, and Zane Velge, political campaign strategist, partner at Northweather, who has worked for the former Calgary mayor, Nad Nenshi, and the former Alberta 
NDP leader, Rachel Notley. Hello. Hello, Evan. Wonderful. Hey, 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 Evan. Oh, my goodness. we got to talk about this rolling thunder in a minute. Um, <laughs> but I want to talk about the census. And I know, like, and I'm going to start with you, Tom. This, I, I think these things are the most fascinating thing because I, I always say demographics is destiny. Whatever policies people have, the, this, these are the things coming down the road which is we've got basically a mushroom. We've got more people that are exiting the workforce than are coming into the workforce in the 60s. Like there was 200 people uh, between the ages of 15 and 24 for every, um, you know, uh, person aging out, um, for every 100 person between uh, 54 and 65. Now it's 81 people. Like what are the challenges posed by this aging population and, and what this census says for politicians trying to figure out immigration, house prices, inflation, health care, everything's about to be affected? We've known for so long that this was coming. It's an example of what you don't do right in terms of public policy. Everybody, every government for the past 30 years has had all of this information, 40 years. Saying, look, mm-hmm. we're going to be living this. There's going to be that many more older people. What are we doing on the healthcare side? What are we doing to prepare the workforce? Answer, nothing. We don't do long-term planning. We're Canadian, eh? So mm-hmm. what we're going to have to start asking ourselves is, what kind of Canada do we want to have tomorrow? I know in the province of Quebec, where I live, I've got a government that's very closed-minded, wants to restrict immigration. The line they use translates as, oh, we're going to take fewer, but we're going to treat them better, as if that meant anything. What they're trying to say is they don't want that many immigrants in Quebec. Every chamber of commerce, every board of trade, every large town that has a has a big mill, let's say an aluminum mill or a paper mill, is saying, we don't have enough workers and give regions more say in how many people to take in. I think that there's a bit of a, a, a bit of a golden idea there with regard to giving more regional decision making power with regard to immigration, because obviously, if we want to have enough to pay for all that health care and everything else that those old folks like me are going to be requiring, then we're going to have to have a booming economy. And we're not going to have a booming economy if we don't have workers. Yeah, Zane, you either need fertility or you need immigrants. And um, there's lots of challenges that we're faced on uh, bringing more people in, making sure we get this right. Uh, how, house prices are, are one of them, affordability issues. Um, wh- what do you make of this and, and, and the political impact of the numbers you're seeing? It's it's massive. You know, with the, the this date with destiny the demographics, as you were mentioning, Evan, this is what uh, governing parties sometimes cringe at looking at, especially if they make downstream decisions, not just months, but years ahead. But they have to make those decisions today. So the political impacts and ramifications are today to able to curb some of these trends or react to them uh, as they head into it. I mean, at the same time, you talked about immigration. We've talked about higher wages, fertility. Many provinces across our country not covering uh, a lot of the fertility uh, aids, so to speak, uh, necessary to, to grow one's family in, in what you may call non-conventional ways. We also have this massive conversation that we've almost avoided, but the pandemic has increased the time horizon for automation by a decade. So there are so many more people out of work who have not gotten their necessary reskilling that they have needed because companies during the pandemic said, oh, we've got these automation plans, but they're a decade down the stream, but we can do these today and we can do these earlier. So this reskilling is going to be just as important as much as it is getting more people here. Uh, there's a lot of people that will be left perhaps without opportunity. I think that is as big of a political mm. problem, arguably even larger and more immediate 
than it is to say, how do we ensure we're right-sizing the type of Canada we want with an aging working population? Yeah, skilled workers, labor shortages, these are like, they seem cross-currents. But, but Tim Powers, politicians love to kick these kind of problems down the road. This, the can is down the road. This is it. Like today was a wake-up call. What challenges, I mean, there's very real debates about inflation, about housing, about long-term care, about health care. I don't think you can spin your way out of the challenges in this census. You you can't, uh, but politicians, Tom alluded to this earlier, it's not just in Quebec. And you remember when Marty Patrick and a friend of all of ours wrote that article about Quebec and what he viewed as the the, the racism that he saw there and political discourse and actual policy. This is a problem in a lot of places across the country. It dominates the political rhetoric. We got to start getting rid of that first and foremost. And then you have to be aggressive, Evan, not just in diminishing the the, the language that is used to play people off each other, but actually going out and getting people. I mean, I, I look at my province, Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, which perhaps has the, 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 the most stringent divide between an aging population and a young population. Uh, look at what Premier Fury is doing now. They're the only province, I believe, uh, that has uh, uh, has sent a team to the Ukraine right now during the war to try and get, get displaced Ukrainians to consider coming to Newfoundland right. and Labrador. They have also, you spoke at Memorial University a few years ago, gave a great lecture at the Galbraith Lecture. Memorial University, the main uh, academic institution in the province, is uh, recruiting in, in India and elsewhere to bring people to the province, Newfoundland has realized if you don't aggressively recruit and try and help create circumstances for people to stay, you're going to lose. Uh, can can Tom and Zane learn something from Tim as he see how he filigreed in a little compliment to something I'd done in there? That really helps get him more time. I don't know if you guys caught that, but I thought yeah, the I way saw, he saw that in there was really nice. Even after he lost steam, you let him keep going. Yeah, because I just thought, you know, first of all, I was lost in my kind of mental mirror dream there, you know? Oh, you should have seen him, guys. He was on fire. He had a room of Newfoundlanders eating out of his hand that anyway, night. Anyway, let's they go. all thought he was wonderful. Tim, stop, stop. Let's go back to Tim for more. Tim? No. <laughs> You're the but, greatest, hey, Devin. Is that what you wanted? There you uh, go. Uh, um, uh, but again, listen. We're all guys here, so there's a lot of susceptibility to cheap vanity. We get it. We understand that. But, but Tom, on a serious note, I mean, one of the things about, you know, we're all talking about house prices and people yep. saying there's too much, you know, and, and, you know, Don Drummond says, look, we have a certain number of immigrants coming. In. Everyone wants housing. We're not blaming it on 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 immigrants, of course, the, the house price issue. But there's pressures no, no. on the system. Like, how do you solve one problem? And while well, you're trying to solve another problem. Well, I think that uh, the market is going to solve the housing price problem because if they keep bumping up a half a percentage point at a time, the the you know the prime rate here in Canada, we're going to see that reflected massively in mortgages, and it'll have downward pressure on housing prices. I think that the federal government was onto something, even though it's not their bailiwick, it's not their their job to do it. But when they were saying, "Look, let's help municipalities deal with the red tape, deal with the permitting, deal with the ability to get approvals," but a lot of those delays. You know, if you go from Vancouver, let's say out to Surrey, you're going to go through a whole agricultural land reserve. Nobody's going to be able to touch that in Ottawa. That's something that they've got there. So there is a strong pushback against urban sprawl. And I think that our types of housing are going to have to change as well. But you're on to something very important there. If you increase by, let's say, three or 400,000, the number of 
newcomers in a year. The question is, where are they going to be housed? And, and there's no easy answer to that right now. We're not, we're not thinking ahead because we're Canadians, eh? Yeah, I, Zane, just, I got about 30 seconds on that. Is there any political hay to be made in thinking ahead? Because if you don't see the results of your promise in your election cycle, what's the self-interest to do it? This goes exactly back to what Tim was talking about. The rhetoric is so powerful because the rhetoric can win the day. For the longest time, premiers here in Alberta have been talking about something called the echo generation, the kids of the boomers. They're the ones that will save us because as long as they're around, they'll ensure that the economy gets back on track, that the taxes are paid. And because rhetoric wins the day, a lot of politicians are frankly disincentivized from making the long-term plays that they need to with today's dollars and today's political capital. Uh, yeah, Boom, Bust, and Echo, that old book from the 90s from David Foote, the demographer. Yep. Uh, all right, Zane, Tom, and Tim, let, let's take a break. I want to talk about this new rally, the Rolling Thunder rally, uh, and I want to talk about should we boot out the Russian ambassador to Canada, the war room next. you through these unique times. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Welcome back to the program, everybody. We are inside the war room with the uh, three geniuses. Zane Velji, Tom Mulcair, and Tim Powers. And I just set the bar high. Velji, Mulcair, <laughs> Powers. Uh, they're also starting a law firm. Uh, <laughs> listen, uh, this rolling thunder, this is interesting. At the break, you know, so that just to, to explain to people... Um, this uh, Saturday, a group of between 500 and 1,000 bikers called the Rolling Thunder are, are coming to town. And they, and I spoke to the organizer. He's a veteran. He served. He did two tours of duty in, in Afghanistan, Neil Sheard. And, and he says this is all about taking back the monument, the war memorial, from the powers that be. I don't know what he—I asked him what that means. And, the, like, I walked by the war memorial today. I'm sure, Tim, you did, too. Um, it's open. Anyone can go there. But anyway, um, so— um, But I then looked at his website, the Rolling Thunder Ottawa website, which he put together. He's the organizer. And there's a guy on there named Chris Skye. And Chris Skye— uh, is an open racist, homophobe, Islamophobe, and a Holocaust denier. He's the only guest speaker. And and Neil Shear denied and denied, oh, he's not nothing to do with us. And I said, is this your event? Yes. Did you put the website up? Yes. And we had this conversation on the radio. He's just literally put out another YouTube update to clarify for the mainstream media. And and, and I'm sorry, and I respect his, his duty uh, and his service to the country, but this is not true. Here's what he's saying. We are not connected to the Freedom Fighters event on the Hill, although we do support any group that wants to fight for freedom of all Canadians. They have an event on the Hill. That's it. Up on the hill. No, it's not. That's not it. I just, I just want people to realize this. I, I because for fact's sake. The Rolling Thunder Ottawa official site. You can go to it and you can see there's a schedule, Rolling Thunder and Freedom Fighters of Canada. He put this up. He's admitted to me. He put this up. They're affiliated. And at 2 Mm p.m., there's going to be the special guest, Chris 
Chris Sky, this idea that he's not affiliated when he's promoting it. And this guy's a racist. He's a homophobe. And I, Tim, I'm going to start with you because you're in Ottawa. Th- this idea that, oh, we're not affiliated. It's freedom of speech. This is garbage. You're promoting lending legitimacy, a racist, a homophobe, an Islamophobe, and a horrible and a guy with charges. What, what do you make of this and how do we deal with this? Well, I heard your interview yesterday with uh, with Neil, and uh, like you, I support all the, the work he's done and thank him, uh, military work, I mean, and for his service. But he had every opportunity with you yesterday, Evan, to disavow this, and he couldn't. He got testy with you, and though he says it's not part of it, why is it on his website? And it goes back to the conversation we had a moment ago. Uh, look, everybody has the right to protest. Certainly Neil and others have fought for that right, and we can respect that right. But when you give a platform to somebody like Chris Guy, you lend your credibility to it, um, you're diminishing the legitimacy of your arguments. I, I wish he would see that, uh, and I wish he, he would recognize that he needs to do something here. Certainly there are lots of people, as, as the three of us know, four of us know, excuse me, who have lots of legitimate pro, uh, frustrations with the vaccine mandates and, and all of the things that we've gone through over the last two years. But they put themselves in a hole, they put themselves in a box, and they fit a typology, unfortunately, when they give people like Chris Guy the opportunity to speak. I don't even know why we're being so kid gloves on it, um, Zane. You, you hold a rally and you invite a racist, you're in the same boat. You know, you are, you, that's it. You're responsible for that. He's the organizer, it's his rally. Uh, that sets his agenda. I don't care how many times he denies it. This is not a mainstream media conspiracy. These are the facts. I don't know why now denial of facts and responsibility, people can do that so openly. It makes no sense to me. Poison the well of his own movement, to Tim's point. And you're absolutely right, Tim. Uh, and you're absolutely right, Evan, that this has got no place and no role in in our country. They may have legitimate grievances. This might be a cry for help. This might be about a group of people who are trying to take something back that they feel like is being lost. Notionally, in real terms, we don't know. But as soon as you start associating, endorsing, welcoming, inviting, allowing on a stage, those that share views that are not allowed, even in whatever expanded definition of a tolerance we have in this country, it's over for you. Your movement is poisoned. I don't care to hear your points and neither should folks that have a a chance to hear you out and change policy as a result of it. You've undercut your movement and you've actually lost more people than you've gained along the way while being uh, egregious, nefarious, and disrespectful. Yeah, and, and Tom, people say, oh, you're, you're such a Karen, Evan. What are you afraid of? This is hate. What this man has said about black Canadians, uh, Muslim Canadians, the denial of the Holocaust, about the LGBT community, like this is, it's so disgusting. It's hate speech. It's gross. I don't know why we're so chicken to call this stuff out. Call it what it is. He's a racist. This Look at protest all you want. I, I'm all for free speech, but that doesn't mean you have to endorse hate speech. And this is a post-fact world, though. Yeah. You had to do it with the, with the Russian ambassador over the weekend. By the way, I gave a big shout out to you on French uh, panel show that I do at TVA and explaining that you actually on the air called the guy a liar. And big high five to my buddy Evan, because it was about time that somebody called the Russian ambassador a liar. And in the post-fact world, as long as you've got a 500 or 1,000 people following you, when it's clear as a bell that there's going to be racist speech and hate speech, and this is somebody who does this, and this is what's going to happen, and then you say, 
got nothing to do with us. You believe that you can convince those 500 to 1,000 people that they can just repeat that. And they're coming out of their computer screens now. They used to be just in their echo chamber, Mm -hmm. repeating the same nonsense to each other. Now that they come out in the open and they get called on it, as you correctly did on the air, then the guy just denies it. And that's the world we live in today. And people get to create their alternative reality. Good on you. For calling it and out then they blame them, and they blame them. Oh, it's a media conspiracy. Look, the media is culpable in all sorts of things, but that doesn't mean we disregard facts. I know, Tom, you you always like to say you're entitled to your own opinion, but not your own facts. But yeah, let me just exactly. stay with you, Tom. Just should we boot out? I mean, you're a former leader. Should is there a place for the Russian ambassador in Canada, or no, do you boot them out? Throw the bum out. Period. Get rid of him. It's a joke. The stuff that he wrote at the beginning, when I read his first letter which was just unbelievable because it was a bunch of lies. I said, you know, I'm going to be very careful with this letter because I have a feeling it's somebody behind their computer screen writing this. It's impossible that the ambassador to a G7 country from the Russian Federation wrote such crap. Well, it turns out the hogwash was straight from the horse's mouth. It was straight from the ambassador. I'm sort of going, okay, this is unbelievable. Now, I don't know why Trudeau is so squeamish about doing the right thing and just getting rid of this guy, because, <laughs> removing his credentials and throwing him out. This is a classic, I think, liberal overthink. You can get into this analytical yeah. frame of like multi-dimensional chess. If we do this, then that happens. Then the embassy closes. Then Putin gets what he wants. And then doesn't that just kick him out? Right. The right thing to do is the right thing to do. Like, I, I, I want to ask seriously, but why I get it. It's going to be in the short term. But I remember when we closed the embassy in Iran, I was there. In China. Mm-hmm. Was that the right thing to do? Like, what isn't the purpose of an embassy to talk to those countries you disagree with? Yeah, but not if they're going to lie to you, not if they're going to consi- consistently peddle that lie, try to use the, the news outlets of this country, the media channels of this country to uh, spill their propaganda domestically. Not allowed. Not happening. Tim. Well, I, yeah, well, well, first of all, kudos to Tom. He's up the pandering game. He mentioned you on French. Oh, my God. I love so, this. This is my favorite panel, by the way. Yeah, like, I'm like, actually like, going to call it not a panel, but a pander. It's fantastic. Go ahead. Tim. Yeah, he's kicked my butt on that for sure. But look, if we're, we're kicking out Russian athletes. We're not allowing, allowing Belarus athletes, but we allow an actual official of the exactly. government of Russia to stay. And a, an athlete who has secondary, perhaps, connection to the Russian government can't come. Give them the books. There shouldn't be any hesitation about it. Wow. This. All right. All right. Uh, you know what? The war room has spoken. They want the Russian ambassador out. I'm not sure that we can only have countries that we agree with as ambassadors, but uh, I certainly feel like uh, having him here is a moral failure of some kind, but what a compromise where we live in. Uh, War Room, you're great. Uh, Tim, Zane, and Tom, thank you. Tom, I especially love you. You're second, Tim, and Zane, I don't even know your name. Uh, We're going out west. You guys are awesome. Uh, We're going to meet a farmer and and wait to hear this story about the avian flu. From coast to coast to coast, the newsmakers talk here. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Many years ago, one of my kids said, Dad, I want to be a farmer. And, uh, okay, so he said, Mom and Dad, uh, I really want to be a farmer. So so for one week, we um, rented a farm on uh 
Prince Edward County and the farmer left and we were in charge of the farm. And we had these two little kids and there was a barn and there was, um, you know, there was some, there was some cattle and there were some horses and some goats and there's a lot of chickens. And my kids just loved the chickens and they fed them every morning and they collected eggs. And it was amazing. We had a great week there and my kids just loved it. And you realize how quickly they get attached to the animals in just a week. Well, imagine being a farmer and we don't spend enough time with our farmers. Most farmers are small farmers, small farms, and they love their animals and they work their butts off. And Peggy Ife is a farmer in Burton, which is a tiny community in Northeast BC. And like many farmers, she is, uh, well, she's dealing with avian flu, which is killing off birds. And, and she's had a, a flock of birds, um, chicken, geese, and ducks that have just been eviscerated by avian flu. And I'll tell you, you don't know what it's like till you talk to a farmer. And Peggy's on the line right now. Peggy, I'm Hi. so glad you're with you. How are you? I'm doing Okay. Tell, tell us, tell, first of all, you're in Burton. Um, you heard about avian flu. How, how did avian flu hit your flock? Well, actually, um, I hadn't had bird feeders out for a couple of weeks, and then I got, because I love feeding wild birds and birds, and I thought, okay, time to fill the feeders, and all the wild birds come in. It was quite noisy, and then I let my girls out to free range, and, yeah, within a couple of days, they were starting to drop. Your they girls being your wild. chickens. Yes, sorry. I, yeah, yeah, my girls are my chickens. You call them your girls, Peggy? I call I call them my girls. Yep. How many? How many? How, how, so, what do you have there? Just chickens, or do you have a geese and ducks? I had one goose. He passed um, day before yesterday, and I had three ducks, and I've lost one, one out of them, and one that doesn't look too good, and the other one's holding. Mm. So, 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 what happens here? And by the way, I want we first heard about you. I always try to credit. This is, uh, I think, on April twenty fifth. CBC first reported this. So, credit to CBC for for raising your story. I, it really touched our hearts here, Peggy. Um, so, what happened? Like they get avian flu, and then what? How, how quickly does this run through your your flock? It, it um, I, for me, um, for I'm blaming the sunflower seeds and the and the, the feeding the wild birds because I hadn't been doing it, and it's the only thing that kind of that lined up with why my birds were dying, they just die. You, you just, you go out there and, and there's some dead birds and you get up in the morning, and there's some more dead birds. And then you start seeing little signs to lethargic. When it first hit, they were just dropping dead. There wasn't within it, but within 24, 48 hours, I started seeing signs. Like they're dying. Like how, how many of your, how much of your flock died? Um, up to date, I had 70, 72 in the one hen house, and uh, sorry, and eight. So I had eighty birds between oh. these two two places, and there is five this morning. Oh man! Over like four days, you lost all these birds. Yeah, it, this would be day five. Five, yeah. And, and what happened? Yeah. So, like, oh god! You, first, I'll get to how you're feeling because I can hear it in your voice anyway. <laughs> I mean, it's hard, right? It's like let's. There's no. I mean, you call them your girls, but I mean, yeah. you, you're you're with these chickens all the time. Yeah, yeah, 24-7, some of them. Um, I've, my oldest girl was 12. Um, I, they, they die of old age. My goose, which broke my heart, he's followed us around. He's four, he, was, he was 14. You've had these birds for 12 and 14 years? Yeah, oh, that, that's the Like, you know the them. I, I, people here are listening have dogs and cats, 
But, you know, ch- these kind of birds have personalities. Like, you know them, don't you? Oh, oh totally, yes. Yeah, you, you got, yeah they, they do. They, they really do. Once you get to sit there and pay attention, everybody's got their own personalities. It's, it, 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 you, you have to be into the birds. <laughs> so tell me, yeah. Peggy, like, so what happens when they die? Like, what do you have to do? Well, when I ended up um, calling a bunch, um, the, the ones that I saw suffering, I, I, um, I hate doing it, but I went up to the chopping block and did a quick, a quick thing, and, and, and we, we bagged all the, and all the dead birds we were finding were bagged. And oh, we you have to do that. If they're shop. suffering, you, you have to essentially... I, I have to. I, I, hate, I hate seeing my birds suffer, and it oh breaks my heart. Oh, my God. That, that is a heartbreaking do. thing to do. It, it is. I, the, the, the one that, the first one I put down that broke my heart was a little rooster, a little banty rooster, and I raised him from a baby um, last fall, and he was a really friendly little dude, and he would come and talk to me, and, and he was one of the first ones that, that it started to hit, and he, he started going down. I didn't want him to suffer, so I had to do what I had to do. But, oh, man. Yeah. And you got to do this farm life. Like, I just want, people always say livestock, dead stock, but that doesn't cover it. Like that, that, No, it doesn't. That doesn't cover it. Like that's mm-hmm. a deed that you know people say. Oh, farmers are used to that, Peggy. Let's no, let's set people no, straight. Not. You don't want to do they're that not. to a sick bird. No, nope. I've been doing bird. I've had birds um, since all my life. Then my daughter went to school, so we moved to the city. But as soon as she was done, we moved out. So in 2006, I started redoing my my farming and that. And I've had a lot of birds and you know, other things, but you do get attached. My husband used to get mad at me because he says I get attached too quick to anything. <laughs> and are, the, are these birds, are these chickens, are these hens, they're laying eggs. Like, are you selling the eggs? I, I was. Um, I, ha- I had a small group of people that I would sell eggs to, and that was really, that really was hard for me to phone everybody and go, I have none and won't have any till if I can get the place cleaned up in time by fall, I'm hopefully to be back into some eggs. I hope so. But don't you have to call the Ministry of Food and Agriculture and say, like, yep. do they come to the farm? Do they check it out? Like, how widespread is this outbreak? This outbreak actually is across Canada. Um, mine is, mine in, in, in our community, I'm the only one here, so, which is a, good for everybody around me because that's the first thing I did is I called all the 800 numbers for the government, and then I phoned... And it was a Sunday, so I waited for them to call me back, which surprised me they did on a Sunday. Um, I phoned all my neighbors that I know have birds that I had phone numbers for, and then they phoned who they knew and they knew. And by the time the government got back to me, the whole everybody here knew, just to give everybody a heads up. And, yeah, they were here Monday morning and tested. Um, I should get the results, I'm hoping, this afternoon, because it's if... If I have to do what I call the nasty, I, I don't want to prolong it. So hurry up and get Oh, in other results. words, you may have to just call the rest of the, the flock. The, everything, yep. Oh, man. Yeah, and which just breaks my heart because I've got, you know, I've got an incubator that they're due off in a week. So if, if I have to, I have to unplug it. Um, all my babies, I have a uh, what I call a hot, hot house. And I've got neck, this falls um, layers in there and, and babies. <sighs> so, so, I, so, what, so what happens, like... Um, so, so to get rid of avian flu, could, you can't just get chickens again now. Like, this is a real scourge here. And, and, and by the way, is there any, I don't, I, I know there's an emotional element here, so I'm not trying to under no, um, no, that's okay. estimate it. But like, there, like do you, is there insurance on this? Um, technically, we have farm insurance, but for, by the time we pay for the, you know, the, dedu- the deduction, and it, it, it's, 
it's kind of like a a yin yang thing. It's what you, you know, whether you do or you don't. Yeah, yeah. Um, the government is supposed to. Now, this is what I was told. Now, I'm not. I'm not sure, but they're supposed to help. Um, like we have 25 meat birds that are were due to be butchered within the next two weeks. I've got um, 25 new hens for this fall, and we. So I think that if I got them right, they're going. They they will help sub a bit for them. Right. Still. And but. I, I, they're supposed to come in. I don't know what they're going to do when when it does because I have to clean all my houses and all the feeding containers. Um, then they come in and inspect, and then I have to sterilize everything, and then they'll come in and inspect again, and then i got to wait 21 days. Right, and as yeah. long as everything passes, then I can start up, which puts me darn near into June, and then I, if I can get everything done you know, within a timeline, then I can start some ticks again. Well, well, welcome to farm life, folks. It, it is it is so precarious and emotional. We don't pay enough attention to it. Where our food comes from, Peggy, I farm in Burton. I hope I hope you don't have to call the rest of the the, the flock. You're in, thank you for talking to us and oh, and, and best of luck. You're just your your heart is so obvious and uh, and keep up the good work. And, and we're we're thinking about you, Peggy. Thank you. All right, thank you. Hmm. That's a farmer. That's a farmer. All right, we're going to take a short break. Uh, There's a new, is it an anti-social media app? It's one of the most popular in the world. Next. Sorting through the changes. Here's Evan Solomon. I'd love to... uh, Get your thoughts at one 633 1010 or 71010. Uh, do you are you like a Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook type person? You know, there's people I know that they're always posting on Facebook and Instagram or Snapchat, and they just they always look great. Like, here I am at a perfect situation. Here I am on this vacation. Here I am having a great time at a party. Here I am looking so great. Here I am at this wonderful meal. Here's a picture of my food. Here's the life that you are not living because I'm living it. And basically, social media is basically, here's me at my peak moments so I can create envy and show off. And a lot of people don't like that. Because it's not reality. Like you go to a restaurant and you see... You know, people posing like here I am, and they they they're all made up, and they pose into social media. It drives me a bit crazy, because one, you look at you like, wow, they look like they're having a great time, but they're always looking better than you. They're always having a better time than you. They're always having a better night than you, a better day than you, better food than you, better vacations than you, better drinks than you, hanging out with the cool people. So I got this app sent to me by my kids, and they said, "Hey, Dad, are you?" Uh, can we, and, and my, my wife too, I don't want to take the credit here. Can you, can we uh, download this uh, Be Real app? What, Be Real? So of course I said, yes. My wife said, can you check it out first, you dummy? I mean, she's kinder than that. She gave me, check it out first, you dummy look. But she said, honey, I think you should check this out. And then you know how uh, when you've been together with someone for a long time, that you dummy is kind of hanging in the air invisibly, but sort of visibly invisible. You know what I mean? Like, I think we should check that out, honey. And you know what that pause is. Duh, you dummy, come on. So Be Real is a social media app that that apparently it's all about, we're not going to be the fake app. 
it basically says when you sign up, there's a two-minute window each day where they ping you, and they say whatever you're doing, you got to take a photo of it right now. So you don't, you can't set it up. You don't know when it's going to could come at nine in the morning, three in the afternoon, two two in the afternoon, eight at night. Whatever you're doing, pick the photo and take a photo, uh, right? And it says you got two minutes now, and every two for this little window, and snap a picture both of like one direction and the other direction, the two photos. So what you're looking at and what's behind you. So if you're in class, it's going to show your computer and the teacher and the people behind you. And that's it. If you're in the shower or in the toilet, well, and, and people are like, and if you don't post nothing, there's just, that's it. There's not, it's not, you just don't get to post that day. And why do people like be real? Because this is actually what real life is like. And you get invited to do it and you can post anywhere you want on Instagram. And this Be Real is a really cool app because it's authentic. And it's like, you know what? Real life is not peak moments that, you know, you scroll through someone's Facebook and it's always peak moment or their, or their Insta. Everything's perfect. You know, let us curate envy. No, Be Real is like, this is life. So you get to socialize. But you don't have to have the social pressure. What do you think of this? Um, I'm going to take some calls. Um, 1-855-633-1010 or 71010. People always see me, like if they, they see me on TV and I, look, I, I, yes, I wear makeup and my hair is combed and I wear a suit. And then as soon as I get off television, you know, like I'm usually in jeans anyway, and I take that suit and tie off and people see me like, you don't look anything like you look. You look so different. You you look like normal. You're wearing jeans and a t-shirt and and your hair is met. It's like, yes, that's my life. Pam says, Evan, I hate people. Pictures of people's food. You can't eat it. Just eat it and be done with it. That is so funny, Pam. <laughs> Nick, <laughs> I love that one, Pam. What's up? Yeah, uh, I don't know any social media, especially uh, Instagram or TikTok. I find that uh, people that are on that, they need uh, attention and uh, validation. I mean, if you need to send a picture, are you sending to your to your friends by text messaging? I think, and I think they're sending anything over, uh, you know, in the world. I mean, it's none of your business. It's none of their business to know what but you're dude, doing. But dude, how? I'm going to ask you a question. How old are you? I'm uh, 67 years old. Right. So your gen is like has a different notion of privacy. Your generation, you know, like there are people listening to us, and you can call me. Uh, in a different, they, they, they love sharing stuff. So yeah, there's one generation that thinks it's no one's business. Why would you text a picture of your food or your friends? But there's a whole generation, my generation and the generation after me, my kids' generation, they, 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 they share all the time on Facebook, on Instagram, yeah. on Snapchat, on TikTok. Evan. What's up? Go for it. Yeah, Evan. Yes. Uh, it's a little narcissistic, isn't it? Uh, you know, I mean, like, come on. Uh, if you want to send text messages to anybody or pictures, you send it to your friends. There's nothing wrong. I do that every day. I've got 200 friends, and I do it every day. But why in the world should I send it all over the world? It's none of their business. Oh, I appreciate the call. Yeah, I mean, look, that, and that's, that's totally fine. And I think, there's a, I think there's a big generational thing here for sure. Like, a lot of people will say the same thing, that they, they, they don't like that. And... Brad from uh, Bur- uh, Burlington says to me, hey, I, mean, I haven't had any social media for about a year, and I'm blown away by how much happier I feel. I found time not just to have a screen in my face. It's hard for sure. 
I don't think I'm going to go back. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, there is an addiction to social media. Evan, why would people allow themselves to be controlled? It's just the opposite thing to create opposing reaction for money. Yeah, I just like it because... um, I like it because I think it gives an opportunity to normalize reality. Like, the reality of our lives is that we're not always looking our best. And I think for young people, this is a hedge against the culture of, of uh, FOMO, fear of missing out. Evan, I don't want my life on an app. I want to escape my reality for a few minutes. I don't want this app. Okay. <laughs> the beautiful thing is you don't have to have it. Like you, you don't have to. I'm just intrigued that there's a market for this, right? The fact that there's a market for be real, that kids still want to socialize, and, and anybody still wants to, you know, I don't, you know, it's great to social, have social media, talk about your life, but you don't have the pressure of setting it up, of preparing, of putting on makeup, of waiting till everything's perfect, of just do it. And again, I, I love the idea that it's more authentic. I actually really love this idea. I think it's super, super, super cool. Um, Evan, the more people show off on social media, the less fulfilled they are. I just use social media for entertainment. And make people laugh, says Chris. Well, cry, like, there's a million uses for social media, right? It's here to stay. Like, we're all connected in new ways. The question of, uh, are we addicted to it? Is it helpful? Um, you know, we're not going to judge everyone's use of it. Some people, look, I have no idea about the Kardashians and that whole world of the influencer that they started. But obviously, it's a hugely relevant business. They're, they've got the last laugh. They're billionaires. Not my bag, you know. I, I don't. I have no interest in being an, an influencer like that. I love the radio, television. I love Twitter. I love social media. But you know, it's not like people. Are, I'm going to say like, "Hey, wear the shoes that I'm wearing." You don't want to do that, by the way. Uh, Evan, how about an app to share a pic of our? Oh my god, I'm not even going to read that one. Someone's worried about metadata. All right, I listen. Be real. The good thing about our radio show together is we can say whatever we want. Sometimes I won't read those texts if they swear. Uh, I'm going to see you on Power Play tonight on CTV News Channel at 5 p.m. Great conversations today. Be real. I like that. See you tomorrow.